0: One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Okay, you're listening to Green Left. Um, for this episode of Green Left, we're going to be having a bit of a discussion about, um, hearing from a frontline worker on, uh, the public health kind of response to COVID-19, especially in the context of what's happening in Victoria, um, which is going through uh, a massive, um, outbreak and surge in Covid-19 cases, um, and there's even a potential possibility that, um, while we're currently in stage three lockdown, um, that a more hard lockdown is still to come. Um, so yeah, I'll pass, um, for the presenters we have today, you have myself, Jacob Antwerfer and we have Chloe De Silva. Um, and I'm going to pass it on to Chloe, um, to introduce our guest, um, that we have, um, for our special program today.
1: Hi, thank you, Jacob, and we are happy to have Hope Matumba with us on the show today. Hope is a frontline nurse and a writer, and you'll you'll often hear Hope on the 3CR radio show Women on the Line. Uh, Hope has been involved in the COVID-19 testing and has been working in the quarantine hotels, and we are going to be interviewing her about what it has been like working during a pandemic and uh, about the current public health approach. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us this morning, Hope. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I guess to start off, Hope, um what can you um maybe what can you tell us personally about your experience as being a frontline health worker and the midst of this kind of COVID-19 pandemic in um especially in the context of what's happening in Victoria?
2: Well, thank you both for 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 having me. I well, you know, I'm <laughs> So I, I have a background in in public health and for a very long time I worked in public health promotion after having done my master's in public health. About uh, almost three years ago now, I decided to go back to study uh, to do nursing um, and I'm in my third year of nursing at the moment. And so my, you know, if you call it frontline work is in two parts as a nursing student I have to do about, you know, 800 plus hours unpaid um, through my degree. So some of the frontline work I've been doing has been in public hospital, um, you know, as a third year nursing student. And then to kind of make money, you know, as you do, and I'm a mature age student who doesn't get any government support. I have had to work casually as a carer. We call it a PCA, personal care attendant. Um, And I work in different places. Um, I get sent out to different places by my agency. Um, And as part of that work, I've worked in quarantine hotels, either, you know, downstairs and sort of like the medical office where we support people who have come in on flights and they need to um, isolate. Or I've worked um, on swabbing shifts, swabbing the people in there. And we usually swab on day three and day 11 of the 14-day, you know, isolation and uh i've also worked on various pop up testing sites uh which is where people from from you know the wider public i've uh, mostly worked in the hotspot suburbs come um, and drive through and they get tested yeah and so I, I mean i guess those have been my experiences this is just stuff that i've i've had to do um to to survive it's it's interesting
1: what what can what can you tell us about your experiences um what can your experiences t- uh tell us about the Victorian government's response to COVID-19.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, at first, um, I really thought that our response in Victoria specifically was, was very good. Um, and that the messaging and the response was much better than, than Scott Morrison's on a, on a national level. Um, but ever since then, I've been disappointed, um, because it seems like we've had a lot of time to learn From other places, but we just haven't done so. Um, and, and it really disappoints me as a public health person who works now in nursing to see that there's lots of lessons that we've forgotten from public health responses, either to HIV and AIDS or other stuff. And I just think that the response by the Victorian government has been bureaucratic and has been mismanaged at at key points and with key Professional. So, you know, my my thinking and my understanding, you know, as a black woman and as a as a professional who's working as a PCA, but I think that (laughs) overall I'm overqualified for the position that I'm doing. So you know, but people don't see me. It's not like you walk around with your resume printed on your on your forehead. So I think that I'm in a unique position um, to see a lot of interesting things. I think that from my perspective: one of the biggest failings has been in getting a clear, coordinated um, processes and procedures that apply to everyone. So the biggest failing has been in the in the management of the quarantine hotels, because quarantine hotels are different everywhere you go. And now with the new WHO advice, that's actually not really new. It's just that it's been acknowledged rather than it's new. Uh, that COVID spreads more quickly. Um, In in closed spaces where people are much closer together. I think that's one thing that they didn't really take into consideration. And they needed to be more monitoring and surveillance of people who are going in and out of those doors, frontline workers like myself, because you get people who are moving around in different places. Me, I have to. Some other places decide to, decided to pay student nurses, student nurses who are also on the front lines in aged care and other places. So instead of limiting our, our movement and checking in more on us to support us, they just kind of let us go wild, nilly willy. Um, and I think that was a big mistake. And I think a big mistake in us not being supported and us just being trusted to do the right thing. So an example of that is, you know, I got a call one time because someone had tested positive at the Stanford Plaza and they were like, stop what you're doing, go get tested and isolate until your test comes back negative. So at that time I was working at a different quarantine hotel and I went up to the team leader and I was like, hey, can I please get tested? And they couldn't test me on site. So they told me to go to another place. Luckily I knew where this place was. I had to go to like St. Vincent. So it was just going through half of the city. But trusting someone to go through half of the city You know, I could have been infectious and asymptomatic. Um, You know, there wasn't any, like, let me write you a map to support you on how that goes. And so I went, I did that, I isolated. But I know lots of other people who are frontline workers, not security guards, but nurses who've done the wrong thing. So instead of trying to understand human behavior and trying to, like, account for it on every level, instead, like, I feel like the government has just been blaming people, and it's very classist as well. Because when I think about security guards and, and their experience, you know, they're the last to know anything. Sometimes we've gone through shortages of PPE and we dole it out based on, based on a hierarchy. So a doctor and a nurse would get the better PPE than even before me or a security guard in some instances, depending on the task that they had to complete. And so I think as well, the language that's used Against security guards is very demoralizing and demeaning. And I go through the same thing as someone who's a carer rather than a nurse, rather than a doctor, rather than higher up in the, in the, in the ranks and the chains. And so the way that everything is very set up is very bureaucratic and you have to be someone rather than it being like a teamwork sort of effort. Like, you know, people. On the internet have spoken about how COVID or the prevention of is is a group work project. And that's exactly what it is. We're all part of a group. And as soon as we start pointing the fingers at other people, obviously there's a protection of a higher class that's going on here. And that's really, that's really wrong when we're all on the same playing field because this is an invisible virus that affects everyone. And the thing that made me more sad as well is that a lot of those people in those high rises that got locked down, you're recreating the same as a quarantine hotel. There's been lots of evidence that shows that people in enclosed spaces are at a higher risk of contracting this virus. So the support that's been given to people who've tested positive in the high rises, they just have to go back to their family members, go back to the small enclosed space and isolate. I've been told how without there being a best practice, and that's really wrong. Like in other countries like Ireland, they were really specific on how they sent out packages in the mail on how to self-isolate. Like lots of little explainers would have been really helpful for everyone in the population, because now we've got this hierarchy which isn't really good. Another place where I've seen this hierarchy at work is in um, the pop-up testing sites. So at the moment in pop-up testing, if you've got a letter from the DHSS, you are sort of fast tracked. Your result is sort of fast tracked, right? But there was this one time where I was working and a woman came, came through the drive through. She was in tears. She looked pretty sick, to be honest. And she was crying because her husband had tested positive. And it's just her, her husband and their kids at home. And she's like, where am I supposed to go? How quickly is this result got to get back? Can you fast track it? But she didn't have a letter from the DHSS and it was like, oh, well, You just go back and she's like, should I send my kids somewhere? What if they're positive? And they just didn't know what to do with themselves, you know? So some of that information that's also being given out to the general public who want to know how to do the right thing, but, you know, don't. And the thing is that lots of communities have been asking for help from when COVID started. So another big mistake that the government made was not listening to people. From the get-go, people who lived in big communal families that they couldn't necessarily avoid were saying, well, you have to know that Victorians live in different ways. Not all of us are maybe in a mansion or know how to access this or know how to access that. So I think the biggest failing has been understanding everyone in the community and getting ready for that and, and listening to them instead sending in police to do certain jobs and not others. And it's just, it's just a big mess and it's a big shambles. I mean, sorry, I could go on. And, and another area where I think there's a key lacking is one of the areas where I think I don't really believe in the cultural system or policing system being able to fix problems. But when we talk about enforcing of rules, one of the places where there's been a lack of enforcement is people who need to self-isolate because they've come into contact with someone positive. For people who are positive themselves, they need to be doing the right thing and staying at home. So I can tell you now that I've worked in a place where a nurse got a positive result and rocked up to work positive. It's not being reported in the media. It's not being talked about. I know that there's maybe a case that's going to go through that's going through that's an inquiry that's looking into the quarantine hotels. And I can tell you that this was in a quarantine hotel. People want to be talking about security guards having sex, but I've worked in a place that wasn't deep cleaned properly that had its second COVID outbreak because of a nurse who wasn't doing the right thing. Now, I don't want us to start bashing nurses or whatever, but I want us to highlight the fact that there's lots of people who think that they can get away with things in society because they are part of a certain class. Like sometimes we like to martyr nurses. We're doing this job because it's a job to do. I wanna see it done the right way. If I'm not doing it the right way, replace me. I don't care there's some people who are getting really good money to go into certain jobs and they keep working there. They only cottoned turned on to this nurse doing the wrong thing two days later because the DHSS has like a, a list of all the people who've turned up positive. There weren't any cops at her place. Every day I want there to be a cop checking in on someone who's either positive and supposed to be isolating or someone who's known someone who's been positive and is supposed to be doing that 14-day isolation. Because I also know a story of someone who's worked in child protection there was an outbreak there. You're not hearing about that. Someone who had was a close contact of someone who was positive, this person was just out and about driving, doing the wrong thing, right? And there was no one there checking on them. Sometimes police have gone in to some people who've been cleared by the DHSS saying, oh, you're negative, you can go out. And then the police walk up to their house two days later, hey, you're supposed to be at home, but I've got a letter from you guys. Oh, sorry, our mistake. So nothing in this system works. And where I would like it to be working the most is on that bottom end where there's people who've actually been close to infectious people. How do we support them to either isolate or make sure that they're isolating? Not poor old people, not not black and brown people who are also trying to like advocate for their human rights and their freedoms, who are also working on the front lines. We're doing plus, 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 plus. Um, And I just think the biggest failing has been in this finger pointing rather at looking things in a holistic way and protecting staff who are maybe working on the front lines, but working at many different sites. I think that's also a big problem.
1: Clearly, there clearly needs to be, um, you hope raised some really good points, there clearly needs to be a partnership, uh, a strong partnership between governments and society and, you know, often involving community leaders and residents and including them in the response to fight um, the virus instead of treating people, uh, certain people like criminals. And it's often migrant communities. I just want to say that in response.
0: Hmm. Well, um, Hope, um, you sort of raised, um, I wanted to sort of ask you a question about the whole racial kind of scapegoating, but maybe we'll put that a bit of aside um, and maybe Chloe can sort of ask that question. Because basically... Some of the stuff you mentioned before actually raised quite an interesting point with how the lockdowns have been implemented. In a sense, a lot of the lockdowns and the sort of punitive measures have been, in a sense, been mostly centred around policing the individual activity of, of people, but not necessarily the economic activity of the state. And so, you know, the only reason I feel that, you know, Workers are being allowed, um, to work, um, while testing positive for COVID-19 it comes from a context where it's clear that the state is prioritizing economic activity, um, at, at the expense of public health. And you only have to look at this recent example. I think a casino in Sydney was fined only, the owners of that business was, was only, were only fined like $5,000 you know, for breaking social distancing or, or not implementing proper social distancing measures in the casino. Meanwhile, um, a group of people in Da who organised a party, I mean, it's stupid behaviour that I don't support at all, they organised a party and a KFC party or something, and they got fined over $60,000. So I want to hear a bit of your comments on on that, on, on some of those sort of points I've I've kind of raised.
2: Mm. And with the KFC thing, I was wondering if, was it KFC that dobbed them in or was it the police who kind of like used some sort of surveillance? I mean, because the other thing is like the police have so many things to surveil people. So I also know that on Wednesday night, be, you know, before the lockdown was supposed to come in, there was a nurse who was talking and she lives in a northeastern suburb. Sorry, northwestern suburb, northwestern suburb. And she was talking about how she's noticed drones um, and and all sorts of, like, helicopters. And, 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 you know, we know that the police got themselves like a fancy new helicopter as well. But other suburbs didn't have this. So I know that in Yarraville, which is, like, right to uh, West Footspray, West Footspray, which was a lockdown suburb, but Yarraville is, like, just across the road from me, and Footscray is over there. So I was also wondering about some of the... Those economic decisions as well, and how they found the people who had this KFC party. When there's also other key ways of finding people who are doing the wrong thing, but they're just not putting their back into it as much as they do with 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 people who can't afford those fines. So even now with the sex workers who who were fined and and that sort of thing. So it really does draw a light to how they see. Enforcement and really the rich getting, keep getting richer and, and not find that much, whereas the poor people, um, you know, find, you know, find through the nose. And I think that for a lot of people who were initially in the lockdown suburbs, which was very wrong, some people don't know that one side of the street is one suburb and another side of the street is another suburb. And if you don't really have a good excuse for, good excuse, I'm putting this in inverted commas, for being somewhere not being in somewhere else. And I also know the receptionist who works out in the Western suburbs and lots of people were cancelling key health appointments because they were so afraid of bumping into the police. So the other thing is like the health impact of this, right? So we know that racism is a determinant of health. Racism has been caused to show poorer health outcomes so like the stress levels when you are afraid of bumping into police the stress levels that over policing has done to to physically to black and brown bodies there's been science on this but people don't talk about it a lot so imagine people cancelling key health appointments and, and doing all of this stuff because they're in a lockdown suburb and they don't know if they're going to be doing the right thing or the wrong thing and they just will pretty much just cancel everything and stay at home. Is that how we want people to be living? Like, I also want to make my job easier as a nurse in the future. If, if we can say to someone, you're doing the wrong thing, just go back home and you can avoid an $1,100 fine rather than finding someone who doesn't have $1,100 who's going to go borrow it from the wrong place, thus leading them into a cycle of poverty or, 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 or 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 any other kind of addiction and that sort of thing, then I would rather that person was sent back home without a fine um, than other people. We know that other people who get into trouble and who can afford it, like, you know, money is just a safety net for you to keep getting out of the same trouble, if that makes sense. Like, if you can afford to go back into rehab five times rather than a person who's living in intergenerational poverty and addiction taking hold, That Those are also two different things, if if that makes sense. So we know that in Australia, you know, people who are, you know, the the highest levels of addiction are actually to to prescription prescription drugs. And it's actually people who are higher up, who end up sort of overdosing at home and that sort of thing. So when it comes to class and over-policing, we're definitely over-policing and finding the wrong people, people who could use more with like a conversational
1: sort of thing
2: rather than, than a fine. Sorry, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a lot of things that I think about.
1: No, that's that's great, uh, Hope, thank you. Um, well, I was also thinking back to the, the public forum on Saturday. Uh, you, you spoke about you know the, the power of community in crisis, and you were also talking about you were, you were spoke, you spoke about, you know, trust and about the undermining of trust during a pandemic response. And, you know, we've, we've seen the media has been quick to blame individuals, you know, and, and even going as far as resorting to racial scapegoating of migrants as the outbreak of COVID-19 continues. Mm. And, you know, a lot of these migrant um, communities, a lot of migrant workers, uh, you know they 're quite vulnerable they they don 't have access to any government support they 're not part of job keeper or job seeker uh, so what are what are some of your thoughts uh, around around this mm.
2: Well, I mean the other thing I want to say is that there 's good migrants and there 's bad migrants according to Australia you know so the other thing you know the other interesting thing is that the nursing profession there 's lots of 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 European migrants that do this job. So a lot of like Irish and and British people with their fun accents that people find fun. But then you have your black and brown migrants where our, our accents and our sort of language needs are different to like your cute European migrants. So it's also the way in which we think about and the way we support different migrants and whether they are worthy in our eyes or not worthy in our eyes so like you know I know that the difference between me and my mum who came to this country as a nurse um over 20 years ago you know she speaks with a big accent and people don't like hearing her speak and they always turn to me and like what what is she saying but she's my go-to person for any nursing knowledge because she's been a nurse for like you know all of her life um But people would be much quicker to like listen to me or think that I'm smart or I'm this or I'm that. So there's also that double conundrum of what kind of migrant category you fall into and whether people find you more or less acceptable than other people. And also me being like a black woman, you know, I go through different experiences than maybe, you know, people who are more visibly black from the South Sudanese community or people who've come more from like a refugee background and have had struggle a lot harder than i have to quote unquote assimilate into the society or whatever so i also want to draw that attention to like the migrant experience because sometimes i've had irish nurses say to me well i don't get any government support and i'm here and i've done my thing and it's like well you're white and everyone thinks you're cute and everyone's trying to copy your accent but i'm sorry it's a different thing and of course we also know that there's people you know there's lots of migrants that i've worked with black and brown migrants that were doctors or nurses or had actual careers in their country of birth but because of the way australia recognizes or doesn't recognize you know like you could have graduated nursing in ireland or the uk and you can come straight here and be a nurse but if you graduate as as like a doctor or a dentist like i once worked with with a nurse who was actually a dentist in the philippines and we were talking a lot Because every everyone wanted him to work in like the ENT, ear, nose and throat, because he had a better understanding of that, because essentially he's a dentist, he's a doctor, but his qualifications never got seen here, and he had to go through such a long pathway that he's like, effort, I'll just go and become a nurse. But now there's all these extra skills that everybody wants to use against him, and he's like, I wanted to switch out of that because everyone would give me all of the difficult cases, and it's like, well, you go and learn, you know? So everyone also wants to benefit from black and brown migrants, but wants us to kind of be at a lower level, just wants you to be a carer or just wants you to be this or that. Now I'm in a more fortunate position because unlike other people, I made the choice to go into nursing, even though I have a master's degree. Other people didn't make that choice. They had to make that choice because either government is really tough, like, oh, you've got to work three years in the country or you've got to do this or you've got to do that. So they just gave up on their dream, a dream that they pursued and that they are actually very intelligent in, and they just had to give up now. sometimes I worked actually with a very lovely doctor um South Asian background, and she was born and raised in Australia, but because she looks South Asian or, or you know she comes from a Tamil background, actually, I do know and The nurse was saying to her, "Oh, I wanted to be a doctor, but it was too full of uh, it was too full of Asian students, so I gave up on that dream, said to her face. And this other woman was a doctor herself, but because she was so nice, the other nurse made a mistake. The white nurse made a mistake and thought that she was a nurse too, but she was a doctor. And not that you should be saying that to anyone, but she realized that. And this doctor sort of had to gently call her out during the shift. And I've had so many amazing conversations with people whom on face value have been judged to be lower or less than, that you think that you can say anything to them, but they are the most intelligent people that I've ever met. And the way that in which professions or the nursing profession or the government talks to them is not a respectful way. You know, I saw that guardian thing come out, the nurse who like worked at the high rises, and everybody called them out. You know, everybody goes to the high rises, oh, these are people who need to be saved. I'm going there to save them. I know lots of people in the high rises who are frontline workers, who are mental health students, who are social workers, who are other things that are living in those high rises. The talent is there. The people who are healthcare workers are there. We're just not prioritising their voices. And this is what happens time and time again in Australia slash Victoria, so-called, is that there are people there who work in those places with the voices, but the voices we wish to prioritise are ones that make us feel better. You know, they're privileged white people who are supposedly on the left who are like, it was for their own good. We just want them to be whatever. And it's like, dude. The government did nothing. It's the young people who came from those housing commission flats that made, you know, translated documentation in however many different languages and turned it around in a 24-hour period. How quickly can the government do that? (laughs) Not very, you know. It's their own communities who did their own work, but we're not giving them that that kudos because we want to keep them on a lower level. You know, I've got friends who work in the Department of Health um, and human services, Somali friends, they were never called to work on those front lines. There's actually people in the DHSS who come from those communities, but they were never called on. And I wonder why.
0: Well, I think um, that gets um, into sort of the the next kind of point I want to sort of ask. I mean, Yeah, because you got to kind of critique sort of the government's sort of handling of the, of the draconian sort of lockdown of public housing tenants and especially how people have kind of treated them and, and how it has gone along racial kind of lines. Um, but I guess I also want to go back to, I mean, some of your kind of experiences as well from your criticisms of the, of the Daniel Andrews government and how they handled. And when you consider all these things, are kind of together, um, what do you think are some of the alternative approaches to public health that sh- um, should have been taken, um especially in the um, especially you know alternative to what the government has done with the um, draconian lockdown of the public housing estates?
2: yeah uh, I think more of um, community approach finding out who the communities are and finding out how they can get Various different sorts of community workers to, to kind of, you know, step up. And yeah, one of my favorite examples is how they're using posties, um, to check in on elderly people. So, um, in Ireland, this is an island specifically because, you know, like the postal workers know you. And so their job could sort of be leveled up to be more like health and human services as well. Um, which made a lot of sense to me, but decentralizing things bit and making it more clear that this is like a teamwork environment more so um because at the moment where it stands when we do swabbing of people right like for instance the in 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 pop-up testing right so like the pathology forms have to be signed by a doctor sometimes the doctor just sits around signing things and when they are happy they've signed enough things Then they just go like they don't help out. Whereas you found other doctors like that South Asian woman who seemed like a nurse, but was actually a doctor. She helps out more. So she's like, hey, you guys, what do you need? As a carer, I can't physically swab people. So do like the swab in the throat and in the nose. And that's fine. So I can just do more paperwork, whereas a doctor can do both of those things. Right. So it's only a doctor that's a bit more gung-ho. Sometimes you've had doctors who are more of the male variety make a lot of mistakes on the forms and on the paperwork, and then you try to tell them off, but, but they're like, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm just trying to be helpful, instead of them just listening. And because we've brought in, like, a bunch of workers who are more used to working in a hierarchical sense rather than a team working sense, well, some people would argue that they work in a multidisciplinary team. But as a PCA, I'm lower than a nurse and I'm supposed to be taking orders from a nurse. And I know that in a quarantine hotel, I had I bumped heads with a nurse because she didn't understand that it was important to write down the reason of refusal for people who are refusing a COVID test. And she ordered me. I had to like make a complaint to um, my agency because she was like, no, you don't do that. I've worked many of these shifts and you're just wasting time. So she just wanted to get the job over and done with. And I was like to her, look, I have a master's in public health. I try to say gently. I know what this data will be used for. And she just gave me the order because she knew that she was higher up than me. And this was in front of another nurse who never stood up for me. And I really think that that just boiled down to this nurse not liking me having an opinion like that's what it came down to and I was like to look we're up here I promise you that when we go downstairs and we tell the team leader she's she's going to want to like no eventually we finished our job and we went down to the team leader team leader was like yeah that is important but just kind of let it go so even I think that the way that the data is collected and and the way that team leaders give their debriefings to people Sometimes team leaders sort of stand aside and sort of think, oh, you're a nurse or you're a doctor or you're like, you know, sometimes they mistake me for a nurse from like to them, I'm a PCA. But the DHSS team leaders, because they've been seconded from other areas, they also just sort of stand around being like, you guys know what you're doing, right? Right. Okay, go off and do it. So Even the briefings, when I come to the start of a shift at a different place, they're not even the same people aren't having a standardized practice and people aren't pulling other people up being like I saw this thing can you please pass it over to tomorrow's people that this thing needs to be done like I would be quizzing people being like who has worked here before who hasn't you know this is what we need to do and going through everything ad nauseum to make sure that the, the practice is standardized at each and every stage. and so what you've done is you know you've a profession of people who may understand things from a clinical perspective, but may not understand things from a public health perspective when that data is very important. So the reason for refusal is very important because we can know if we're going in there to fix things around conspiracy theories, or we can go in there to fix things around this or around that, um, and we can know where to you know, tackle behavior change because public health is about changing people's behaviors or whether you're a nurse. There's some nurses who've never even gotten the COVID test. I've gotten it. but Some people will be like, I've never gotten it because I think it's gross. And it is a gross test. But why can some people choose not to get it done and other people can? And another thing I think is that it would be really good to have regular testing of frontline workers where that isn't the case. I was told to go off-site. I once worked at a quarantine hotel where there was a security guard who was staying there um because there'd been this outbreak and he called down and he's like hey can I get a test and the nurses were like well that's not like in our mandate like we're supposed to only be testing people like we're only looking after people who've come in from a flight not people you know because the quarantine hotels are also open to people who can't quarantine at home so this is another uh, you know um example of something that happened to me now what does this security guard have to do, he has to then apply for a half-day exemption where the DHSS will call him a taxi or whatever else to send him to a testing site to get tested and he's got to come back and do his quarantine. Where's the sense in that when he's now got to go and maybe make other people potentially have COVID? Like there's just no rhyme or reason to this and the people who need to be tested the most and checked in on the most are the people who we are martyring in this whole system, thinking. Oh, you're the expert. You go off and you do your thing. Bottom line is, there are no experts. I don't care if you're the Queen of England, you'll be getting a swab up your nose and you'll be staying at home if I think that, that, that you've come into risk and you've come into contact. Another thing is like the double, the double thing with like, oh, some people were getting turned away from test sites because they didn't have any symptoms. You know, I think part of it is this economic thing that you're talking about, Jacob, is that you know, we've only started wearing masks this week, but there's evidence, like people in Austria, in Europe, Austria, a very tiny country, have been wearing masks for months now, for months. So where is also the rhyme and reason is that I think that they've tried to save money on PPE, and I think they've kind of gone, oh yeah, maybe things are looking all right. And there's actually been the kind of complacency that Dan Andrews is talking about, is something that filtered up from the top and goes way down to the bottom, right? So I know that when the COVID numbers were starting to get, you know, looking a bit better, especially in Victoria, when it was New South Wales that was being laughed at, places that used to have hand hygiene and temperature checks were like, oh, it's all right now. It doesn't exist here anymore. And that was right up from the top. These are places that are supposed to be be managed by the government. They were the ones who were being complacent. And this complacency trickles down from the top down. So if you were sort of lax in your practices when things were being lax, how can you blame other people for being the same way? And mind you, the security guards or whoever else got it, they got it in the workplace. And then we ease restrictions for five family members, twenty family members, and then and then they, you know, and then that's how the community transmissions spread. So instead of trying to support each other all the way from the top down, we're having we're doing the blame game, and that's that's not the way to go. We're all Supposed to be on the same level and we, we should have locked down everybody at the same time and looked into some of these other things. But I think there's a lot of things that they're hiding. Um, and especially the non-unionized construction sites. So another thing that I've been seeing is construction. I live in a cul-de-sac and you know, because I drive around a lot of the times, it's really surprised me to see the amount of things that have gone up. I've seen like a new, a whole new petrol station being built. It's working and it's operational now. My whole state this truck is focused full of people who are maybe coming in. Sometimes I've heard a truck at 5 a.m. when it shouldn't be there. So some of like the construction sites and construction workers as well, I, the non-unionized ones, what's been happening there? Has anyone been looking into it? And because this is a pandemic time, I think that there's lots of dodgy things that have been happening. And it's like here's a sex scandal to distract the masses, but there's a lot more stuff that we're not talking about. And 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 that's the really sad thing, and and I hate what's been going on with the nursing profession, martyring us. A lot of nurses that I work with are younger than myself, twenty to twenty-five year olds, who've been talking about the pubs going back on. They just want their lives to just go back to normal. I remember once finishing a shift with like a mental health nurse. I mean, mind you, she was a very beautiful woman with high heels, and she was just talking about how she loved that everything was in lockdown because she could shop in the middle of the city. As though it was she was on her own private shopping spree. A lot of these frontline workers whom you're martyring are people too, are just 20 year olds who thought that they'd have a life, you know. And I've been seeing people do the wrong things from the top up to the bottom down, and there's no rhyme or reason. We just have to understand where people are coming from and look at the special pass, the special badge. It says I'm a frontline worker. What are you doing with that special pass? that special badge and are you doing the right thing with it and there are no martyrs in all of this this is a group project and we're all trying to
0: get by oh yeah thanks um thanks for that hope i think you've um in this sort of interview i think you've managed to cover all sorts of different kind of themes um all kind of drawing on your experiences of, of being um, a healthcare worker um i guess i just wanted to ask do you have any kind of i think it's probably about time to conclude do you have any like final comments you'd like to make
2: you know, one of the comments as well is that, like, I feel like people can focus on more than one thing at a time. And I think that the key leaders in 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 a public health response are people who can see the bigger picture, can see the whole project. Right. And I think one of the things that, you know, the final comment as well is just to say that I'm really proud of people, um, the community who's gone in to support the people in the high rises you know one of the things we're trying to make them do is take the vitamin d and their vitamin c because it's been shown that people who are vitamin d deficient have um poorer outcomes if they COVID positive so this is one of the things that we're trying to get and we know that it's people who are usually darker skinned from migrant backgrounds who don't get enough sun um, that are mostly vitamin d deficient so i would like to give a round of applause to people who are um, Thinking about the bigger picture, the effect on the VCE students who are currently in lockdown, there's so many parts of this pandemic um, that aren't being talked about that we really need to be talking about, you know, like get the conversation going on reusable masks and what to filter them with, you know, you need to put a filter in that, like, you know, the little video that that you know the chief medical officer when he was struggling with it around his ears like you know that doesn't help anyone there's been so many community things that i've seen go around um and i just want to say you know reach out to your community there are lots of mutual aid groups because what we need right now is mutual aid for us to be thinking about each other as a big collective and i also want to say to people you know be checking in on your asthma plans you know Um, The positive thing is that we're not like the northern hemisphere in that everybody is missing their summer, it's winter and everyone wants to stay at home naturally, but also springtime is coming, a lot of us have respiratory conditions and respiratory issues, I've got asthma myself, now is the time if you've had uncontrolled asthma to start looking into it, to start knowing that you've got enough antihistamines to know if something is because of an allergy or it's because of COVID, you know, know the differences and don't be afraid to look in on this knowledge, you know. There are a lot of people or a lot of countries who are going through the COVID stuff that have lots of articles that, that, that shed a light on things, you know. Don't wait for the government because they're holding on to their own information and doing things at the last, last possible resort. I mean, the mask mandate could have come a lot earlier And I think it should be made compulsory. This is the first time I asked my workplace, my casual workplace, about a mask when COVID first started. Um, And it's only this week where they've said, you can come to our offices and get some. When I first called them, they didn't have any for me. And they were like, that's not our job to do that for you. So who's also policing some of these private companies who are letting me go out to old ladies, to quarantine hotels, to all of these places, you know? And and also the hospitals that weren't supporting student nurses, you know, there were a lot of student nurses that had to, you know, let go of their placements because we were either unpaid or uni couldn't give us a guarantee of how they would protect us during COVID time. So students have, in Victoria at least, have had to go through the physical and emotional labour of doing this unpaid placement, but also like the labour, of all of this, uh, of academic labor. So some universities have said, hand anything in and we'll just give you a pass. It's a no fail sort of thing, which was nice. But some universities like mine haven't done that. So I have a thinking to people who have to be in multiple professions, not by their choice, but because they've got no other choice, you know. So... Yeah, just think about the wider things in your community and what some other people may be going through and and listen to them and prioritise their voices and and that's it.
0: I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.